to Hebrews chapter 13 as we are moving through this last chapter of this tremendous theological and yet practical book of the Word of God. And we're looking this morning again, I want to go back and look at verses 9 through actually 14. And I've been looking at, this is the sixth time, looking at the virtues of the Christian race. These are the things that theology produces. These are the things the Spirit of God is building into you. And we already uh, have learned that there are six things already that theology will produce in a believer's life. The first one is brotherly love is one of the, one of the genuine and first marks of always having this uh, quality being uh, displayed in our life by the Spirit of God. The second one was hospitality to those who need it. Uh, the third is simple sympathy, being able to uh, reach out to those who are in trouble. And then purity before marriage and after marriage is what the Lord is producing in, his, in our hearts. And then uh, fifthly, realistic contentment, real contentment that we are uh, content with what we possess, what God has given us in our lot, in our life, uh, and we are content with that, knowing it comes from the hand of God. And then last week I looked at uh, imitatable loyalty, that the Lord is developing in us and a loyalty that can be imitated by others. In fact, uh, I said already that what... Um, you're loyal to will show up in your character and your manner of living. What you give your time to, what you think about, what you're willing to die for is really uh, what the Word of God is getting at. You know, what you're willing to leave for what God thinks important, what, you're, what people you're, you're, let, you're ready to leave behind for what God thinks is important for you. So Scripture points us... Uh, to where to look for our models, and that's found in verse number 7, and this is by way of review, all right? We are to, really, the Bible's condemning, uh, I mean, excuse me, it's commendating, it's, it's making a commendation towards faithful leaders. That's where you look, you look to people, right, to be uh, where to find loyalty. And of course, in verse 7, it says, remember those who led you. Right, so be mindful of your leaders, especially those who, in leading you, led you by what they preached. In verse number 7, they spoke the word of God to you. Right, so the word of God was primary uh, to them. It was the primacy of the word of God that was important to them. So that should be important to you too. That's going to be the, the, the very ingredient that keeps you going and faithfully growing in the Christian race. A second thing in verse 7 is that they led by how they lived. The primacy of the Word of God wasn't just theoretical knowledge in their head where they were able to pass Bible exams, but it was actually something practical. It says in the Word of God here to consider, in verse 7, the result of their conduct. That when you think about that, if you want to know how to live by faith and finish the race, well, scan closely the manner of life of those who are 
faithful teachers of the Word of God, and of course, not only ones that are alive, but ones that have died already, uh, that you saw that, hey, wow, they finished the race. They finished the race well. They finished the race with joy, praising the Lord. They finished the race knowing what was on the other side and trusting God fully. They finished the race as people of faith. That's the whole book of Hebrews, people of faith. You want to be that kind of person. And then once you, imi- once you get that in your knowledge, then in verse number 7 it says, imitate their faith, the last part of the verse, all right? That we are to be mimics of those who faithfully lead whose pattern of unselfish, devoted, sacrificial service is marked by the one in whom they imitate. And of course, as they imitate Christ, then you imitate their life as they're imitating Christ. Because somebody like this is constantly looking to Christ. Constantly looking to how he lived, what he requires of us, and wants to be like him, and so therefore you can follow someone like that. And that's what the Bible, where the Bible is bringing us, because number, in verse number 8, it says there's a third thing to be mindful about our leaders, how they led by what they fixed their eyes on, or who they fixed their eyes on. Verse number 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So not only did they have a primacy of the word of god they had they stuck to the supremacy of god's son of jesus christ that's the center of of all the word of god from genesis to revelation it is all about jesus christ that's what god's plan is christ is the one so if you miss christ you realize you miss it and so really the writer of hebrews is getting these jewish believers who somehow maybe want to go back to the comfortable confines of Judaism to say, no, leave it and go and follow God's plan. Follow the shadows and the types and the pictures all in that system that you had that God gave you in the first covenant because they all point to Christ and then leave the old covenant and live in the new covenant, right? That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling us too today who live that jesus is the same that his plan was always the same yesterday in history he died for his children as the unique one-time eternal sacrifice today he is the forerunner in hebrews who has already entered heaven and christ right now is in heaven now interceding at god's right hand for us right why so the whole plan could come to completion. So everything can be done in God's program. God's not done. We're still in God's program. He's not finished yet. And so we're all part of it. We're in the mix. And we're, it's an exciting time to live as a believer because we are in the mix. And then it says that he is the same forever. That means eternally. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end that is Jesus Christ. So the whole book of Hebrews has always been centered on Christ. If you want to know, if you want to study any book that's going to bring you back to Christ, it's going to be the book of Hebrews. And so his help, his grace, and his power are permanently at God's people's disposal. 
His, all those things are at our disposal who know Christ. And all this means is that his character, his word, his plan will not change, so he can be followed and trusted. And those who follow him can be followed. They can be mimicked because what he says, he will do. In fact, he will accomplish all that he has promised in the word of God. And so that is where we kind of look went last time and then in verse number nine he says now wait a minute there's there's a problem though and this is the problem while you're living in this world there's going to be all kinds of teaching that goes on some of that teaching is false teaching but it sounds real good if you don't have the word of god as primary and if christ is not the supreme person in your life and you move away from that and you stop following your faithful examples then you already while living in this world are in trouble because now you are going to be bombarded by some kind of false teaching and that false teaching if thought about if embraced by you somehow, gets into your mind and into your thinking, then you can be led away by it. And so, what's the point? The point is, listen, know the Word of God so you can't be led away by it, right? Keep your eyes on Christ so you can't be led away by it. Because it's always going to be what they think about Christ that's going to determine whether they're true or false, right? That's where you go first. And so look at verse number 9 because now he gives a condemnation of false leaders and he says this, don't be carried away by varied and strained teachings. Now the danger here is that some who profess Christ have stopped listening to and following their faithful leaders so they begin to take their eyes off of Jesus, the one who remains the same, and instead they start to develop itching ears by accumulating teachers to suit their own liking. Now, of course, that's a very familiar uh, doctrine in the writing of Paul where he told Timothy they will no longer endure sound teaching, but they'll go after Something that is what? Itches their ears, sounds good, makes them feel good, or whatever it may be in their life. But it's a departure from the truth. It's, depart it's a departure from the Scriptures. And so he's saying here, when does that happen? Well, when the Word of God is set aside and is no longer primary, and then Christ will no longer be supreme. And then, of course, you, like I said last week, you flow away like you're caught in the, the currents of a river and you start being misled, not even knowing it, by false teaching. And there you go uh, down the river further and further and further away from the truth till the truth don't mean anything to you anymore. And Christ, well, I don't know about Jesus Christ anymore either. See, that's how it happens. And so they just kind of get numb to it all. The varied teaching are deviations from the truth not based on the teaching of scripture and then of course strange teachings are those unbiblical and distorted teachings that did not even sound like the teaching of scripture but they did sound good so the teaching of a false teacher 
whatever they're communicating to a group of people, they have to have some kind of source on where, where they're getting their information from. Either they're going to get their information from the current philosophies and teachings of the day, even in the evangelical or Christian religious world, there's a bunch of teachings out there, and there's new ones popping up every year, and, uh, or they get it from their own mind. People are intellectual enough to be able to communicate by the power of their mind certain teachings or truths. And they can, by power of persuasion, persuade people even to believe them, that they sound even orthodox and sound. And they have that ability and power. You may have met people like that. But somebody who knows the Word of God, they always have their radar up. They are always trying to detect. They're always examining. They're always running through the grid of Scripture what they're hearing to make sure what they're hearing is the truth. And does it line up with the Word of God? Or it could just mean the, the, the doctrines of men or even the doctrines of demons. Demons will supply whatever teaching you want to bring you away from Christ and to move you away from the truth of God's Word. So these teachings are ever-changing. They are not the same. There's not a single theme and program and end result to it. They're just all over the place. And these teachings are usually teachings that people want at a certain even moment in time but none of them, none of them makes anyone spiritually strong. And so that's where he's heading in his text because in verse number 9, again, I want to point you to the reference in verse number 9 to foods. He says this, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. In other words, it implies that these first century false teachers were carrying out their strange teaching about dietary restrictions and food laws of one kind or another. Of course, remember, food and drink and various ceremonial washings and external regulations were common in the Hebrew system in the Jewish system. In fact, if you turn your Bibles quickly over to Colossians chapter 2, you will see in this passage that Paul again warns the people when it comes to certain traditions of men, certain regulations, especially in the area of doing something to be accepted by God. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, it says in verse number 16, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And then he says in verse 17, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, these were just shadows and pictures of what the reality would be the reality would be filled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, back to Hebrews, we, we see here that when you continue to listen and follow faithful teachers and where the Word of God is primary and Christ is 
supreme, then you will be a discerning person. And I'll tell you what you'll begin to discern. You'll, number one, you'll discern this, that the heart of a true believer cannot be strengthened by ceremonial foods. All right, well, maybe that's not our case today. But I want you to notice what it says in verse number 9 of chapter 13. It says that those which those who were occupied by a particular ceremony or standard or regulation concerning foods were never benefited by it. Actually, they were led astray by the teaching and they embraced it with no lasting spiritual benefit in it at all. It was worthless, in other words, he was saying. They're doing something that is worthless and actually is leading you away from Christ and away from the truth, and it has no benefit spiritually to strengthen you whatsoever at all. So see, you discern that as a believer, and so the varied and strange teaching was, again, the bottom line, it's worthless. Why would I want to get, get involved with something or think about something or be led as led into something that is worthless spiritually. I don't want to spend time there. Life's too short for that. I want to spend time on the truth, right? So you and I ought to be thinking that way. But look what it says in verse number 9. And this is where I want to kind of stress this morning, is that the heart of a true believer can only be strengthened by grace. Look what it says in verse 9. For it is good for you for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I felt like I had to go back there. Because you know what, people, and you know what I do, don't really understand grace. In fact, we start out with grace, right? And we end up with standards and regulations and rules. Why is that? Because, see, false teaching is always pressing upon the church for us to leave what really strengthens us and really benefits our soul and give it up for something that we could do. Something that we could tangibly measure. Because you know, it's really hard to measure spiritual growth. There's not this spiritual growth ruler to say, well, there is actually the Bible. But you can see that, am I growing in these virtues? He's listed already six virtues. Am I growing in these things? Are these things evident in my life? Well, they will continue to be evident when you... To run this race must have something to strengthen you. Any athlete who's running in a race, they find out as much information as they can about what diet works, what vitamins to take, what power drinks to take. Why? So they can maintain their strength and ability to be on the competitive edge to win the race, or at least in the Christian race, to finish the race, right? So... For you and I, what kind of vitamins, spiritual vitamins, can we take? What kind of diet can we be on? Uh, Not food, of course, but spiritual diet that's going to make us strong. Well, right here it says that the heart is going to be strengthened by grace. That the renewed heart 
which is the seat of human personality. And in Hebrews here, in particular, it has a reference to attitudes and conduct. If it is going to be made strong and firm, it must be by God's grace. The day you believe in Jesus, it's by grace. And if you live to 75 or 100, it's by grace you become strong and firm in heart. So you're not moved in this direction or that direction. In fact, in Hebrews... A heart that is continually to grow, grows firm by grace, will be a heart that holds fast to their confession, a heart that approaches God boldly in prayer, knowing what to ask, and a heart that is willing to bear the reproach for Christ. That no matter what reproaches come into my life from being, because I'm a believer, it's not going to move me away. It's not going to pull me away from what is primary and what is important. So Hebrews already emphatically stated that the law brought nothing to completion or perfection. So that means that Jewish regulations about food are not beneficial. It also means that any kind of food regulations or any kind of external regulations or any kind of list of rules of do's and don'ts have been for all time surpassed and outmoded by the work of Christ. We cannot, before we become saved or during our salvation, add to anything Christ has finished or completed. Now, that's important because it is grace which strengthens the believer's heart not any kind of rules, not any kind of avoidance of any kind of prohibited food that somebody says that you should not eat or eat at certain times of the years or that you shouldn't do this on this day or that on that day or that a Christian should look like this and not like this or a Christian should go there and not go there. You know what? If you are discerning, you won't have to worry about spending time thinking about those. You all know what to do. I'm going to do anything that honors Christ. I'm, going to get, do, I'm not going to do anything that dishonors Christ. And you can pretty much answer almost any question by just thinking like that. And so that's what a believer is going to do. So the word grace, if you are going to be strengthened by grace, then maybe we should know a little bit more about grace. The word grace stands out above all other words in the Bible in describing God's great salvation. In fact, 130 times in the New Testament alone, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, I just want you to listen. It says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course. He's talking about running the race. And my ministry, which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the primary motive for those running the race was the grace of God in the gospel. And then Paul in, in Romans said this, being justified by the gift, by being justified as a gift by his grace. And then he, of course, adds this, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul, again, in Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared. Well, where, where has the grace of God appeared? In Christ, right? Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us here it is, the practical part of grace to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly 
righteously and godly when? In the present age you live. So there it is. Grace is going to strengthen me in respect to my salvation, and grace is going to strengthen me in being someone who displays grace to other people. So both two things. It's the theological and the practical connected in the word grace. And then again in Titus, it says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so being justified by His grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life so this word charis is used in all those scriptures grace this word of course has various shades of meanings according to the context in which it is used but when it is used to refer to the salvation of sinners it always means always means God's unmerited favor god's blessing god's mercy all are shown those things are all shown to those totally unworthy undeserving hell deserving when there is no consideration whatsoever of any merit on the part of the other person together a further understanding of what grace means requires going back to an old Hebrew term uh, that meant to bend down or to stoop. And the picture was this, that God bent down to people through his plan to give them something they could never deserve. And so the term included the idea of consending favor or, as pastor and Bible scholar Donald Barnhouse said, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops is grace. So, but to think in our mind that this is what God has done to you and I who would never and could have never earned it or deserved it. So, that means there are, there's at least three things to emphasize about God's grace. The first thing is this. To show grace is to extend a favor or a kindness to one who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. Now you say, well, these are, these are the thoughts that are going to strengthen me in my faith. Why? As I go along and I don't feel right, I don't feel this, I don't feel that, life goes this way, life goes that way, I can't keep up with the way, all the twists and turns of life, but I know this, that my salvation in Christ can't be taken away because I didn't deserve it in the first place. So God gave it to me. He decided to stoop down and give it to me, and so every time the thought of grace appears, there is the idea of it being undeserved. That strengthens me. And in no way is the recipient getting what he, he or she deserves. Favor is being extended simply out of the goodness of the heart of the giver. So that grace flows from the heart of God who is the giver to someone who 
doesn't deserve it. They would never have deserved it. You and I would never have deserved what God's giving by grace. A second thing I want you to think about grace is this. Grace is absolutely and totally free. Now, most of us, including myself, I have trouble with this one. Because we work for everything we get. You know, they say if, if something sounds too good to be true, it's probably not, right? A lot of times, things that are offered free, eh, I don't know about that. And everybody, I don't care what you say, today, everybody is skeptical about everything. People don't trust anybody. They don't take anybody at their word. And they just don't know who to believe. Now, I can understand why, because of all the stuff that's going on. But, see, we can't let that affect our understanding of grace that was going to strengthen me in the faith, that grace is abs- absolutely free. And to understand grace rightly is to see it comes to us free, clear, with no strings attached at all. God's not saying to us, I'm giving you this gift, it's free. Uh, it's it's not, not deserved, but somewhere down the line, I'm going to require something of you to add to it. No, that's to think of grace wrongly. In fact, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher in London, gives a definition of grace, the grace of God in his comments on Romans 324 and he says this and I quote there is no more wonderful word than grace it means unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving here again the purely gratuitous gratuitous character of our salvation is brought out it is something that results from the sole exercise of the spontaneous love of God it is not merely a free gift but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. And it's given while we are without hope, ungodly, and without God in the world. So, what do we deserve? What's the opposite of grace? Condemnation, wrath, judgment. That's what we deserve. So see, if I'm going to be strengthened by it, I must understand that I could have never earned it. And number two, that it is absolutely and totally free. There's no strings attached whatsoever. A good illustration of this is from the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And remember, when he stood by a woman caught in adultery, the law clearly stated, stoner, she committed adultery, no doubt about it, the grace killer's who set her up demanded the same yet he said to the self-righteous Pharisees he who is without sin let him cast the first stone what is that you know what that is that is grace because under the law they had every right to bury her beneath the rocks in their hands and they were ready to do so But Jesus intervened with grace and preferred forgiving to stoning. See, yet there are are many people who think that there's something they must do to pay God back. Some 
Somehow they're, they're hoping God will smile on them if they keep, if they, if they work real, real hard. If they work real hard, they'll earn his acceptance, and that's an acceptance based on works. See, receiving God's acceptance, according to this passage of Scripture, is not by any kind of works-based list of systems or do's and don'ts. It's the acceptance of God by grace. How, why are you accepted by God? Can, tell me again, I know your life. I know how rotten you were. Why would God want to accept you? You know why? Because he chose to. And when he chose to do it, he chose to give it to me who would never deserve it, and he chose to give it to me without cost, freely. Wow, you know what? That does sound too good to be true. But yet in Scripture, it is true. And so therefore, this is what strengthens me, that receiving God's acceptance is by grace, always stands in sharp contrast to earning it on the basis of works. You see, now that Christ has come and died and thereby satisfied the Father's demand on sin, all we need to do is claim His grace by receiving the free gift of eternal life, period. It is free. It cannot be bought. In fact, to attempt to buy it is a great insult to the giver. If I were to invite you to my home and say, come over, let's enjoy our company together, and we make a big meal, and we drink, and we have a good time, and then at the end, uh, you reach in your pocket and say, how much did tonight cost? And you say, you know, I'm ready to write my check out. Would that not be an insult to the one laying out their table and their food and their fellowship and their time and, and they, they didn't want any payment they just want to enjoy the night together that's all they wanted but sometimes that's exactly the way we think when it comes to our Christian walk see that's why these subtle things can rob us of the very strength God's given us and that's grace in fact there's a third thing I want you to think about when it comes to grace and it's this grace has two dimensions one is vertical, vertical grace. Vertical grace centers on our relationship with God. It is amazing. We sang this morning, Amazing Grace. You know why? It is amazing. Every day we ought to wake up saying, It is amazing that God saved me. It is amazing that God allowed me to know what I know. It is amazing that I have the Word of God in my hand and I can know what is the good and the perfect and acceptable will of God today. It's prescriptive for my life. God allowed me to know it. I can know what pleases Him. See, grace is amazing because it frees us from the demands and the condemnation of the Mosaic Law and it announces hope to the sinner the gift of eternal life along with all its benefits. And what do we learn when we become believers? We learn all the benefits that we have once we become a believer. We have a city, right? A place God's preparing for us. We, don't, we can't undo our salvation. No one could take it away from us or any of those things. And so therefore, that strengthens me. It gives me boldness. It gives me a desire to continue to serve God with gusto. And there's a second dimension to grace, though. And it's the horizontal grace. One is vertical. 
One is horizontal. That centers on human relationships. It is attractive. Grace is attractive in people's lives. It frees us from the tyranny of pleasing people. It frees us from adjusting our lives to the demands and expectations of human opinion. It gives us relief. The enjoyment of freedom along with all its benefits, it silences needless guilt in our heart and it removes self-imposed shame. Sometimes we walk around as Christians guilty about something we've already confessed, Christ already died for, then what's your problem? We, we are robbed of our joy and we're joyless Christians, and why? Did the, God, did the grace of God change? Did Christ change? Did something change? No, some false teaching got into your head. Something's tugging at what the truth is and readjusting it in your mind, and you're letting it happen. And so, therefore, your joy is out the window. Now you begin to live on, how can I please people? You begin to live off this guilt of even sin that you already confessed. And then you walk around ashamed. Therefore, robbing you of your boldness to share the gospel and live a Christian life that is somebody can imitate. See, the Bible is saying here, listen, if you're going to have strength and you're going to continue to walk in strength, you must understand and think every day upon what grace is. You know why? Because it will deliver you from legalism. And legalism is a slow suffocation of the Spirit. It, its diet is rules and standards. So it, it, it was alleged by these teachers in Scripture that the competing teachings concerning foods will strengthen the heart and keep it from defection. And yet, grace is mediated through the Word of God and, of course, the instruction about food in the place of the Word of grace is destructive to the faith. Rules and standards are destructive to the faith. The person who follows it is in danger of being carried away by false teaching, a false understanding of the tremendous grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus as a gift to someone who doesn't deserve it freely. You live there. Live there. And it'll be hard for someone to rob you of your joy. Live there. And it will be hard for someone to move you off track and move you away from Christ. It will be very hard for, for them to do that. And so, where does that bring us as far as our passage of Scripture in Hebrews? Because there's a third and a fourth thing that you will discern when you continue to follow faithful teachers and the word of God. And what are they? That the heart of a true believer cannot have an interest in two altars 
at the same time. Now look at our passage again in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10. And it says this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. All right. Let me just say at the get-go here. Why is it that true believers cannot have an interest in two altars at the same time? Why? Because the two altars are so different and involve such different religious observations. In other words, let me put it like this. You cannot... Jesus Christ cannot be just an add-on to what you believe. Jesus Christ cannot be an add-on to a religious system. You must follow Christ alone and completely. You can have dual things going on when it comes to worshiping Christ. You have to have a singular desire in your heart and understanding that, listen, a fourth thing would be that a heart of a true believer can only have interest in one altar for all time. Now, let me just explain that. That Christians instead are to give central importance to one great aspect of their faith, and it's this, that Christ died for them. The reason why God's able to give you grace is because Christ died for you. That he was a sacrifice for you. That he shed not the blood of bulls and goats like under the old system, but he shed his own blood. And so, therefore, we have a sacrifice which some cannot enter, some cannot come to this altar and partake of this altar. And so the bodies of animals offered on the Day of Atonement were not eaten, but they were actually burned outside the camp. Now, just look at the passage again, because it is a difficult one. It is the most difficult passage in, in the book of Hebrews. And so it says in verse number 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, this is the question I had when I was looking at this passage. When was an offering in the Old Testament eaten, and what did it signify? So I want to try to kind of help you through this. But as we do this, and as we begin to grasp some theology here, Keep in mind that the altar identifies the offerer with the sacrifice. And with certain offerings, the individual further identify himself with the altar and sacrifice by eating some of the sacrifice. In other words, that the offerer brought their offering uh, to the tabernacle, and they brought it for a particular reason. And then that offering was to be taken and then that offering was to be offered up as a sacrifice. Now, some of the sacrifices were never eaten. You never partook in the sacrifice in that way, but some, you not only had it offered for your sins in the Old Testament by the priest, but then you partook of what was left. The parts that they didn't burn was given to the people who offered it to eat it. Now, I'm saying that for this reason. What offerings, or let me just think of one. 
in the Old Testament that people actually ate part of the offering once it was offered. Well, it was the peace offering, was one of them. And the peace offering, all right, was offered, uh, either it was a cattle or sheep or a goat, all right? The offerer had to make sure that the offering was a male or female, perfect, without blemish. They would kill it and cut up the animals, and of course the priest would take the animals, uh, splash the blood on the altar, and then parts of the animal were burned, and other parts, like the fat, was burned all also because the fat was considered the best part of the animal. In fact, it showed that the worshiper was giving their best to God. All right? That was the significance of the peace offering. Now, two principal differences of the peace offering. That the peace offering follows the burnt offering in the Old Testament, the grain or the cereal offering, uh, because like them, it is one of the offerings. When burned, it produced, the Bible says it like this, a soothing aroma to the Lord. In other words, the Lord smelt the offering and it was pleasing to him and therefore it made the relationship between God and that particular person offering a pleasant relationship, a wholesome relationship. So see, the first principal difference was that the peace offering was an optional sacrifice. It could be offered by a person whenever they felt like it. In other words, they could say, you know what, the Lord's been good to me, and I recognized it in my life. I'm going to bring to the Lord a peace offering. It was not required. It was, it was a free will offering from the person's heart. And so... A second principal thing about this particular offering is, was that the worshiper was allowed to eat part of the animal himself. He was allowed to par partake in what he offered to God. So the peace offering, some of the animal was burned, some was eaten by the priest, the rest was returned to the worshiper for his own consumption. And so the peace offering was a festival meal eaten in or near the rear of the sanctuary and the ceremony usually concluded with the worshiper and his family or friends joining in this meal and they ate the rest of the meat in fact many scriptures mention this in deuteronomy it says and uh chapter 12 it says this and there you shall bring your burnt offerings your sacrifices your tithes the contributions in your hand your votive offerings which con was considered also part of a peace offering, or free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of the flock, and there also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God had blessed you. When a person brought this peace offering, it was, he was required to make sure he came in a state of ritual purity in fact in leviticus it says chapter 7 but the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belongs to the lord in his uncleanness that person shall be cut off from his people so now that, that's significant because here's a person who wants to offer a peace offering but they still remain unclean before god in fact the very offering that was going to make them have a better relationship or fellowship with God now has 
excluded them from the assembly, has put them outside the assembly. So see, the purpose of the peace offering was fellowship with God. It was in the first division of Leviticus, God's foundation of fellowship was sacrifice. And of course, the second part was that of the man's condition before God. A man could bring a peace offering just to thank God for what's going on in his life. A man could bring a peace offering, or another way of putting it, a votive offering. And that offering, too, was offered before God as a free will offering, and that was to be eaten. And then he could even bring a free will offering to God. And like Leviticus 7, 16 says, but if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, or one brought voluntarily, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. On the next day, what is left is to be, it, it may also be eaten. So something spontaneous happens in offering a peace offering that the person was devoted to God. A person wanted to worship God. A person wanted to worship him because they they understood and they experienced the goodness of God in their life. And so, like the psalmist tells us, willingly I sacrifice today. It was a willingness from the heart that they sacrificed. So the peace offering was very often related to the covenant where the people were to offer peace offerings in gratitude to God and that the peace offering typically is seen as a joyous occasion and a, and a sacred meal that went along with it were opportunities to rejoice before the Lord. So here, the bottom line really is this, that the burnt offerings represented thanksgiving and dedication to God, and the voluntary peace offering just told of happy fellowship with God. Now, back in Hebrews, back in Hebrews, the offerings that he's talking about there is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, you did not participate in eating the sacrifice. The whole sacrifice was taken outside the city and burned there. And so, I believe that there is a connection here related to the altar, the sacrifice, and to the eating of it, that if you want, in other words, if you want to identify yourself with the altar and the sacrifice and have happy fellowship with God, it won't be by eating some of the sacrifice. Why? Because it's all finished. It's done. The old covenant is done. You cannot improve your relationship, your fellowship with God based on a free will peace offering to God in which you partake of eating it. That's over. It's done. In other words, if you do not have this altar in verse, this verse right here, and that altar is Christ, right? Then you have not yet identified with him and therefore have no salvation. So he is saying and laying out for us that, listen, if you have not come to this altar, Christ, then you are excluded from eating because you are not at peace with God. 
by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are still under the old system which could never take away sin. In fact, Hebrews 10.11 tells us, and every priest daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So in other words, if you do not come to the altar of Christ, you're still in your sin. There's no peace offering, sorry, to offer. There's nothing to eat to bring you into fellowship with God. It is God's final new covenant that, listen, it is Jesus' blood that confirmed the new covenant promise that it is true and binding to all who believe it. And then what what did it lead to? It led to the remittance, the forgiveness, the cancellation of sins, of the sins of the sinners, and that is where the person is now accepted by God and finds fellowship with God. And that is the only place they can find it. In fact, again, in Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So another way, another way of saying it, listen, without Christ, there's no forgiveness of your sins. And if you don't have Christ, you're still in your sin. Secondly, you will still be unclean, cut off from God, excluded from eternal salvation, and barred from entry into the eternal city. That's why he says in verse number 14 of Hebrews 13, for here we do not have a lasting city. In other words, he's saying to the people, listen, there is no lasting city here in which you go and you worship God. That is done. That's over. Instead, it says, we are seeking a city which is to come. There's that promised city of Zion, which is given to those who believe, who come to the altar of Christ, right? And so a third thing is that he says to them, listen, not only you without, without Christ, you have no forgiveness of sins. Not only without Christ, you have no eternal city. But thirdly, without Christ, you have no r- relationship with God, for you are not In other words, you're out of relationship with God because you have refused access to God through Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, look back at verse number 10 of chapter 13 in our text because this is the way he puts it there. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Hence, We have a sacrifice which some cannot enter. Now, I said last week that those who serve in the tabernacle or at the tent are those who wish to remain under the old covenant. So the emphasis would be that if you want to stay within the narrow confines of your workspace religious system, that is devoid of grace. And of course, in this case, it was Judaism. And you can derive no benefit from the only sacrifice which really matters, therefore cannot share the great sin offering of all time, and that's the sacrifice of Christ. So such people have no right to eat the eternally satisfying provisions of the new covenant. There's no sacrifice they can bring. There's no peace offering they can bring. There's nothing they can do. Why? Because you can't eat this sacrifice. The only thing you need to do is believe it, receive it. See, the sacrificial imagery brings to mind the sin offering of the 
annual day of atonement. Under the old covenant, the priests were entitled to use the sacrificial animals as food after they had been offered, but that did not apply to the sin offering on the day of atonement. On that occasion, the sacrifice was burnt in its entirety. That's why in verse 11 of chapter 13, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burnt outside the camp. That on the day of atonement, there was no participation in eating the offering. It was completely burned. That means all the offering was presented to God. None of it was available to any priest or any family member that could partake of it. And so in verse number of uh, chapter 12, I mean, in chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Therefore, he's concluding this, that Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, if you want to identify fully with the altar, that is the sacrificial death of Christ, there's several things that he was telling the people there that they must do. And I, it gets back to what I just said not too long ago where I said that, listen, a Christian is really someone who, has, who, has to, who, who must realize that he cannot have two things. He cannot have two altars. He must just have one. And that one is where Christ died on the cross. All right, so he's saying to the people here who he's writing to, listen, you must leave the holy city, Jerusalem. Why? You have no abiding city. You must leave everything that that represented. A second thing he's saying to them is that you must leave the old system for the new. And whatever significance and importance the old covenant traditional ceremonies, regulations, and standards of Judaism once had, they are now invalid. Why? Because now there's only one altar, and that altar is Christ. So God now does his work completely outside the camp of Judaism, outside the camp of all religious systems, in fact, especially if those religious systems are work-based, that you must do something to earn God's acceptance. All right, all those systems are debunked by the sacrifice of Christ. Today they are debunked that someone who puts their stock in a religious system or in a church, they're going to be in for a rude awakening because they must now leave it and that works-based system and go completely outside of it to Christ and Christ alone. In fact, the temple, they were to leave. The altar, they were to leave. The sacrifices, they were to leave. The rituals, they were to leave all ceased to be part of God's program all of those things all they ever were were signposts pointing to the complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ all of them everything you read in the Old Testament all points to Christ and so therefore you must leave it you must leave your philosophy you must leave and you must go outside all these things for salvation and sanctification. That's why in verse 13 it says, So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his 
reproach. And remember, for a Jew, to bear the reproach means giving everyone and everything up and going forth to him. Why? Because Christ alone is our nourishment. Christ alone is our only access to God. We have one altar, and that is Christ. Everything else pointed to him. So what strengthens our faith? Grace extended to you and me. Someone who never would deserve it and could never earn it. How does grace strengthen me? By thinking of that and by knowing it is absolutely free and that grace could never be taken back once it is given by the giver. So if you finish the race, it will be because you are growing in your knowledge of the great, amazing grace of God. And not only did these Jews come to believe that and know that, and that gave them fuel and boldness to finish the race and leave all that they knew that was dear to them, but it will do the same for all of us today that we must go out to Christ and leave everything and follow him the rest of our days. And what do we follow? We follow those who keep the word prime, primary and Christ supreme. That's what we follow. And if we follow that, we will grow and become strong and become bold. And someday, and you know already, that life is short. And you can't even believe now you're as old as you are right and you never when you thought well uh, 50 years old oh man that's old oh man and now you're past that or you're very close to it or you're around the corner but life is short so give it all to Christ that's what he's saying here so you can't have a bunch of stuff going on here you can't have your own little system your own little philosophy when people you talk to people and they say to them, well Religion's too personal, and I have my own thing going. Well, wait a minute. See, that's, that's what he's trying to get at here, that there's no such thing, that you are actually under God's wrath and condemnation if you think that way. And if you die that way, you have no altar where your sins were paid for. You have not had God's grace given to you. You are going to head where God's grace will not take you, and that's hell. Do you see what you have? Do you see how amazing grace is? I pray that you would, because that's where your strength comes from. And that's where it's going to be maintained, nowhere else. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, again, I thank you for, I know, Lord, very difficult parts of Scripture. But I pray, Lord, that there was some understanding that came through this passage so your people, Lord, would not be fooled. They would not be merrily led along the wrong stream or down the wrong stream. But they would be discerning. That every day they would understand what the grace of God has done for them. Every day they would be strengthened by that. Every day 
they would know there's nothing they could add to what Christ has done. There's nothing they can do at all whatsoever to keep their salvation because Christ has secured it all. He's taken care of everything and that we have a bright hope and future even though in this world our ten pegs are loosely fastened. We know we have a city, an eternal city, whose builder and architect is God himself. And that's the promise we have. And we know, Lord, that we can trust you. I pray, Lord, that you would make your people leaders that can be imitated in their faith because their eyes are fixed upon you, because their heart is in the word of God, that their mind is thinking about it. And in their life, there's only one supreme person, and that's Christ himself. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us boldness to speak forth the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who haven't heard it yet. And, Lord, continue to strengthen us by the the word of God. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, uh, 